questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. What is the history of money? Is there a better way? Communism and socialism are not the answer, as evidenced by so many failed experiments, like the Soviet Union, Cuba, and Venezuela, to name a few. Tonight's guest is of the opinion that capitalism is not working either. Could we learn from the ancient ones in order to bring about a system that renders money useless, but that uses the energy of the people instead? Why is history wrong on human origins? Does ancient technology give us a new perspective on the Anunnaki? What is the nature of reality? What is the scientific agenda? I'm sure you have seen mountains with a flat top. Think of Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Could these have been giant trees cut with ancient technology in order to mine monoatomic gold? Think of the movie Avatar. These are some of the topics we're discussing tonight. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Tonight's special guest is Michael Challenger, a scientist in the true sense of the word, never shying away from controversial issues and scrutinizing every clue meticulously. He approaches everything from a scientific perspective and is not afraid to discuss anything and everything, just like me. For over three decades, Michael has had a long obsession with the origins of humankind and the genetic anomalies of our species and has authored many books. His websites are michaeltellinger.com and ubuntu or ubuntuplanet.org. Both are linked on our website. Michael Tellinger joins us directly from South Africa. Hello, Michael, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm fabulous, Mal. So nice to hear your voice and great to be talking to you again. It's great. It's great also. It's almost like uh, last time I saw you was at the East City Ranch 2011, six years ago. And I feel like I just spoke to you yesterday, so glad to be reconnected. Michael, I haven't talked to you in years. Can you just give us a, a quick summary of what has happened with Michael Tellinger in the past few years, just to give us an update? Well, thank you very much, Mel. Uh, as as everything uh, in our lives, we are on a journey that we have very little control over. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and some of us fight our journey and and some of us enjoy the ride and and uh, follow the flow of the river that our journey has uh, provided us with. And um, I guess uh, several years ago, it was more or less when I met you, 2010, I think it was, when I first um, realized that that I had a, a, um, a slight diversion in my in my path, and I, I was forced with the choice to either follow the the river of life that was being presented to me or to fight it. And I chose at that time to follow the river of life and uh, and see where it takes me. And I'm very happy that I did because it was at that time that I decided to put a lot of more time and effort into uh, promoting the Ubuntu philosophy and, and talking more about uh, a new world without money or free of the control and the constraints of money. 
and uh, and and see how that how, what happens. And that's exactly what I did. So my research into the ancient civilizations of Southern Africa, the Stone Circles, Adam's Calendar, uh, the advanced technology, um, I guess, was in some way hijacked by my by the rapid evolution and the rapid growth of the Ubuntu movement uh, that came out of that research, uh, obviously. And um, realizing what money is, where it comes from, the origins of money, how it was created, invented, and and how it manipulates and controls humanity for thousands of years. And um, slowly but surely, the, the Ubuntu movement evolved and grew um, on its own. And I just had to, I guess, manage and uh, and stay with the program. <laughs> and here we are today. Um, and, you know. 12 years down the road from when I first started talking about a, a world free of money, a moneyless society where money doesn't exist. What would that look like? Uh, and uh, had no idea when I started to share those those crazy thoughts in 2005 when I first started talking about that, um, how quickly that would evolve into a movement that is now in more than 200 countries of the world and uh, supported by millions of people. And... Um, and that, so that's really what's been happening. Uh, un, unexpected, un, unbelievable uh, journey that I've been taken on. We briefly discussed this back in, actually, you're right, 2010, not 2011, so almost eight years. But uh, Ubuntu, or how do you pronounce it? Ubuntu or Ubuntu? U Ubuntu, yeah. Ubuntu. 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 How different is this? Uh, I've been thinking of, of the parallels with some other concepts, the Venus Project. Uh, how does it relate to, to something like the Venus Project, for example? Um, I, you know, I love the Venus Project, and I, and I, and I loved um, Jacques Fresco dearly. He was a, an absolute beautiful human being, uh, a visionary, uh, and 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 a, a, a bright light to remove money from society for many decades before I even entered the picture. And he paved the paved the way for other broad thinkers and people that that are brave enough to step outside of the box and not be afraid to ask questions, you know, and and not be afraid to explore new horizons. Um, the, the the major difference between Venus Project and the Ubuntu movement is that uh, Venus Project put a lot of emphasis on technology. And and um, you know suggesting what our cities and our and our world would look like, uh, and I believe that that was possibly the not the right way or not not the way it will evolve. I believe that uh, we should always put people first, and that's probably the biggest difference between Ubuntu and uh, Venus Project. In in the Ubuntu movement, we be we believe that technology exists, it has evolved, it exists, it's there for us to be able to use. But um, the the people will decide what technology they need to help them uh, in the society, the kind of society and the kind of world that they want to live in and not be driven by technology, which is really the world we have today. If you think about it, today the technology is developed for us by the corporations that in most cases, the big global corporations that run the world are really controlled by the banks so uh, the technology we have today is, is developed for us by the large corporations. It's not really there to serve us. It's there to, to control us and enslave us. Uh, and the large corporations are, are really behind that as well. Um, so the Ubuntu movement is uh, very much uh, 
a movement that that is all about the people, by the people, for the people, what is best for the people, decided by the people, and that includes the technology and the kind of um, environment that the people find themselves in. I want to discuss more about, about Ubuntu, but I also want to ask you, a lot of people are emailing me lately asking me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and so on. Do you think cryptocurrencies are bait to transition the world into digital currency? How does Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptocurrency relate in any way at all? And I know that it's a moneyless society, what you're presenting or proposing. How do they relate to the Ubuntu liberation movement, if, if there's any space for this concept at all? Well, that's, uh, it's a very important thing that you mentioned there, because I, I, I do believe that the, the cryptocurrencies are probably a, a, a trap and a decoy to, to lure us into a false sense of security that we are now dealing with a, a moneyless society. And, and that is not true. Uh, cryptocurrency is still a currency. And it's a form of exchange and a form of a bartering and a form of trading. And, uh, and that's exactly what the Ubuntu movement uh, is, is uh, completely and utterly uh, moving away from any form of money. Uh, so let me just remind the people that are not aware of this. The, the Ubuntu manifesto or what I call the mantra, the five point mantra is no money, no barter, no trade of any kind, no value attached to anything larger than any, any, anything else, uh, because all of our contributions should always be deemed to be equal. Um, and, uh, and finally, we're a society in which everybody contributes their natural talents or acquired skills for the greatest benefit of everyone in the community. So no form of money or change or exchange or bartering whatsoever. And cryptocurrencies remain a form of bartering or exchange because as long as you've got any form of money or currency or bartering or trading or exchanging, somebody somewhere will find a way to exploit that situation and will use it for their own benefit at the expense of the others. That's the way it simply works because you, the moment you have that kind of situation, uh, you create uh, a, an opportunity for inequality and an opportunity for, um, for division. And that's exactly what we need to move away from. And, and keep in mind that, and, and, you know, when I do these, these workshops, these Ubuntu workshops, these extended and really in-depth workshops for two days with people, eventually when they come out of there, they are finally stripped and, and cleansed of their need for some sort of form of money or exchange because it has become such a grudge, such a, uh, a, a, a drug and, um, and an obsession with most of us that we, we really struggle to let go of it. Some people get it very quickly. Some people get it immediately. Some people take a little while and some people just resist it. They believe that we need money or some sort of form of trade or exchange. Otherwise, we can't survive. And that's when, when we realize how poisoned we have become with this concept that was introduced several thousand years ago for one single purpose only. And that was as a tool of enslavement over humanity. So it's only when we get rid of money, only when we do something completely different that has never been done before in our human living memory, do something so dram dramatically different and, and, and opposed to what we're told we should do. Only then will we free ourselves 
from those tools of enslavement. And the key thing that has come out of this 12-year journey that I've been on with, with you know, the Ubuntu movement evolving itself in many ways um, and taking me along on, the, on its journey is, is the realization that, and this has been the biggest realization for me, it literally happened in the last two years, when I realized we cannot fight or resist or oppose the current system. Because the moment you do, you get entangled in its energetic form. You get entangled in that black magic that is woven around itself. And we cannot fight it, resist it, oppose it. We cannot engage in any of those old paradigm tactics and behavior. We have to step away from it and stop opposing or resisting it. And we use the tools of liber- the tools of enslavement, which is money, capitalism, the greed of money, the entire social structure that's been woven as a spell around us. So we use the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation to help create a new society in which money is no longer needed. And this is uh, the most beautiful journey that uh, that I've discovered, and uh, and I guess become the the most incredible twisted poetic justice that anybody could have ever imagined. That money and the concept of capitalism will become the tools that actually undo itself. And the interesting thing is that most people don't understand the history of money. Why is it that we? pay with, now now we use these central banks, fiat money, Federal Reserve notes. They have absolutely no value. They have a printing shop. It's nothing but a legalized counterfeiting agency, uh, the way I see it. But if you look back in time, hundreds or if not thousands of years ago, uh, when people used to barter and then they started exchanging precious metals, uh, you know, silver, uh, gold coins, and so on. And it was, they needed to put them somewhere because they were accumulating them and they found somebody to keep them. They called it a bank. And then all of a sudden the, the bankers say, wait a second, all these people have all these gold coins here. I want to be able to lend this money out there without people knowing because they won't withdraw it. And that's the, the, whole, the whole concept of interest came along. And it has de-evolved to what we have today around the world, which is what subjugates the entire world. And those countries that do not want to participate are the axis of evil. Isn't that interesting? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And as you said, very few people have any idea or knowledge of what money is, where it comes from, um, how how it was created, who created it, who's responsible for creating it. and uh, who controls it today? Who controlled it in the ancient times? Um, and uh, and how it's how it controls the world today? And this is really important. So I'd like to just go through this. And and what what most people go uh, go on about money is the is the misinformation and the disinformation that comes to us or that we are given in our education system, in our so-called accounting classes, in our at, at universities and at schools, when we talk about history and the origins of, of, of money and bartering and trading, um, is pretty much a story that you tell. But that's not necessarily true. The real story is that 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 money appears complete as as a concept, as as a physical form of control and a tool of enslavement. It appears it has it did not evolve. It appeared very quickly and very suddenly. And then the concept of bartering and trading and and the and money as a tool of enslavement that then starts to morph and change 
over hundreds of years and thousands of years based on the needs and the manipulative tactics of those who were controlling the money supply in those days already. So nothing has changed. Everything has been this, the same way that money is controlled by a few global elite families today, the same way it was controlled thousands of years ago. And then the forms of money, the way that we are now going away from physical money into, into um, cryptocurrency and 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 a cashless society, and, and we need to talk about that. This is a big, huge danger to all of us. While we are still trapped in this money-driven and controlled system, the moment we enter a cashless society, we become complete and utter slaves to the system. At least cash, as evil, as bad as it may be, at least having cash in your home and having millions of dollars stashed away in cash, that still gives you some power and some control and some ability to take control of your own uh, activities. If you are completely and utterly controlled by some invisible company somewhere controlling access to your electronic invisible money on some card and you have no control of it, you know, they can shut you down in a second and you have nothing. So a cashless society is a very, very dangerous thing to our liberties and and, and our immediate liberties right now. So we've got to guard against that at all cost. We've got to insist and, and hold on to the, the cash in our, in our lives and in our, in our money driven system until we find a new system. Uh, but the origins of money, as you mentioned, is a, is a very interesting and a mysterious, uh, situation. And that takes us back to the reason why the Ubuntu movement started for exactly this moment that we're about to discuss when I realized that there was a time in human history when I was researching the origins of humankind and started researching it deeply before I wrote Slave Species of God. And um, and I realized that there was a very specific time in human history that money suddenly appears as a complete and utter philosophy and a tool of enslavement. And uh, And that's many thousands of years ago. Um, it's very difficult to say exactly when because of the, the murky historic lines and we know very little about that time in human history except what the Sumerian tablets tell us. And then many of the interpretations of the Sumerian tablets are not always accurate and uh, and come from an in, uh, a naive perception of what was going on uh, in the world. But what we are told uh, in the Sumerian texts, um, especially the king's lists, we are told that there was a time when kingdom was descended to earth from heaven. And the first priest kings were appointed by the gods. These first priest kings, I guess, were the first slave masters that were appointed by the gods. These could be the Anunnaki, most likely. Um, and these advanced beings that, that, uh, that appeared on earth, um, mostly, uh, act, active in the, in the search for gold and the obsession for gold. We can expand on that, uh, if you want to as well. And these, these first priest kings were appointed among, from the humans and, and possibly half breeds of the humans and Anunnaki or the sons of the gods. That's also possible. So again, who these first priest kings were that were appointed is a big question. And these first priest kings were, 
were pretty much the the, the snitches uh, for the Anunnaki and the, the gods over humanity to make sure that they were controlled and manipulated and kept under control. And these first priest kings were given advanced uh, weapons of mass destructions or west, uh, weapons of control and manipulation with which they could smite the humans if they didn't obey. And this is why the, 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 the kings took control, not because people wanted to have a king because they thought, well, we need a king. You know, these kings were appointed and forced onto humanity because of the fierce, the, the powerful weapons they had. And, uh, and that's, that's pretty much what happened. And the first, the first, one of the first things that these first kings did was to create money, a form of money in the form of clay tablets. And they printed these clay tablets in their temples in ancient times. And, um, their temples then in essence became the first banks. And, uh, they were, they were, um, handing out these little clay tablets to people if they brought them gold or silver. So anybody who had gold or silver would bring it into the temple, and in return they would they would be given a little clay tablet as a form of exchange, as a piece of tablet that said this guy deposited so much silver into the temple, uh, and uh, and and these were at this stage looks like these are the first forms of money on earth, and then it starts to go down this long and winding road of convoluted stories that we hear about how money actually evolved, which is not necessarily true. What I've shared with you now is probably much closer to the truth about the true origins of money. So it's important to recognize that it, money appeared as a complete philosophy and a tool of enslavement over humanity. It, not, it did not evolve out of thousands of years of bartering and trading as we were led to believe, incorrectly led to believe. I've always wondered the question when I see royalty all over the world, kings and queens and so on. And then I remember learning the history of Saudi Arabia and all those kingdoms in the Middle East when oil became a commodity that was used in the Western world and how the United States and, and Britain had a part in establishing that kingdom over there. And it makes you wonder who established all these kingdoms around the world. And it goes back, as you said, to the Anunnaki, were these the managers for the Anunnaki, basically? That's exactly what I think, Mel, and that, that's how we, how, how I perceive the establishment of the first kings and kingdoms and, and royal bloodlines. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Why, why would we have royalty in the world whatsoever? You know, just think about this. Th think about. Uh, you know, you live in a small community and, uh, and everyone, you know, works together as they would have thousands of years ago, uh, growing food, um, looking after each other, supporting each other in their communities by choice. And, uh, one morning I wake up and, uh, and I say to the guys, hi, everybody, let's, let's have a meeting. I've got some great ideas to share with, with everybody in our community. Um, uh, I've got a great idea to share with you. And um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sure you're going to love my idea because it's going to really be great for me. Not so good for you, but it's going to be great for me. Uh, and as of today, I'm going to be the king. All of this land now belongs to me. And you have to now work for me because this land belongs to me. But in return of working for me, I'm going to give you uh, little pieces of clay 
that uh, that I call money and and I will allow you to grow your own food but you're going to have to give me a lot of the food that you grow so that you can feed me it, it's like it's an insane idea the in exchange for world, what yeah exactly <laughs> the the whole royalty idea and concept is the most insane idea the same way that the creation of money is an insane idea and it is for me as i sit here right now as it has over the last how many decades makes absolutely no sense whatsoever how royalty could have emerged anywhere on earth out of a normal community and the royalty is the royal bloodlines are the bloodlines that are part of the creation of the control systems that we still experience today uh, in a in a in a in a more and more increasingly draconian and and fierce way and it makes me wonder in the united states supposedly we became the 13 colonies and we became independent and our sovereign nation but yet every year i get my real estate tax bill if i do not yes. pay that bill I'm ejected from my own, uh, quote-unquote, own home. The house is put into auction. And, you know, because of the real, real estate, real meaning royal. So do yes. we still have a linkage to the British crown here? Well, I guess it's it's a linkage to the to the ancient um, uh, bloodlines and the control, the ownership, the, the fact the world is, is run and controlled and owned by the same royal bloodlines that, that started the money system many thousands of years ago and control the money supply today. And uh, it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, the interesting thing today, however, is, is the, 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 the system is so dark and so corrupt that it will ultimately destroy itself. And this is where the Ubuntu movement becomes so powerful and such a simple solution to the problem. Um, and uh, and this is what I guess makes so many people around the world when they find the Ubuntu movement and read what we're doing and and our simple plan and solution for a new society and a new world without money, um, how they get so excited because they realize it really resonates with them uh, in their hearts and in in their genetic makeup like it does with me when I first started talking about it. Um, but what what what's interesting what's What's happened now over the last um, century, I suppose, is the the split up and the the breakup of the global money supply control system. And I just recently discovered that, uh, and I suspected this, I, but I didn't have any any way to support it because, uh, and that is, you know, who controls the how is the Russian and the Chinese economy and the money supply controlled in Russia and in China? And that's a very, very uh, complex question. Now, you might go read papers and you try and get information about this. It is almost impossible to get any information about how the, the global banking elite work and how they how they operate. It's impossible because this all happens behind closed doors. It is not published in magazines or in books or in annual reports. This is, this is the private control, you know, system of the world that happens behind closed doors. And only a very few privileged people ever know what decisions are made behind those closed doors and how the system operates. And for a long time now, after having gone, you know, my own journey, taking on the banks in South Africa, in the Supreme Court in Johannesburg, and 
obviously losing because you can never win against the banks because they own the controls. They they, they own the, the, ju- the justice courts. system. They, yeah, they own the courts. They own the judges. They own the presidents and the prime ministers. They they own everything. And if they if if they don't play the game, they simply remove them, assassinate them, or replace them. And and put in a new puppet that does exactly what they want them to do, and, and you know, for for people that don't that don't understand how this works, it's that simple. It is really that simple, and it's for that reason that I often call the 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 global money system and the global banking industry the largest organized crime syndicate in the world because that's what it is. It is an organized crime syndicate that has imposed itself on all the people of the world through their money supply, through the governments, through the prime ministers and, and the presidents, and it has completely and utterly shut down the world, controls everything, and it is an organized crime system that controls the ju- judiciary and the legal system, so we can never win. And um, and you can jump up and down and talk about your sovereignty and talk about this and sovereign man on the land and all that stuff. It, it's not going to help you. The only way that we're going to help and change this is is the philosophy of the Ubuntu one small town strategy, which is a simple strategy that has evolved over 12 years. And I'd like to go into uh, talk about that in more detail. But to go back uh, is uh, to what I started the train of thought here was how has the global financial system evolved over the last century? Because we have the, the the so-called West and and most of the countries of the world that are completely and utterly controlled by the the Rothschild Empire, the banking system that is controlled from uh, from Basel, Switzerland, the BIS Bank for International Settlements, and through that bank, uh, the BIS, which is with the, which is like the Vatican almost, you, the you, you can't settlements. get in and out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the Bank for International Settlements. Um, you can't get in and out. Uh, I just spoke to somebody that lives in Basel, um, who was on tour with me here in South Africa, a tour of the ancient sites. And uh, he told me that if there's an accident or something happens in the BIS, not even the police are allowed in. Listen to this. This is The police have to get special clearance and permission to enter the BIS. This is how, how they control their own environment. Uh, and so it tells you they control the governments, the prime ministers, and the police. So they're supra, the they're supra governmental. Let's call them what they are. You call it mafia, but add the other word, Kasarian mafia. Yeah, uh, in many ways uh, that that is that has been described to be the the the, the situation as well. But <clears throat> what is what has come to to light for me is I've been wondering how. Russia and China operate with this banking system because I couldn't believe that the Chinese government, the way it operates today, would be part of this and controlled by this banking system and neither Russia. And and I was correct. Um, I I had it uh, from from very, very reliable sources that China does not play the game at all that china pretty much does what they want but you can imagine that the cabal the the money the money mafia had to bring china into the global financial systems because they would have collapsed it and created their own financial system yeah that's how powerful china became and the same goes for russia so between russia and china we have a very interesting two two players that are not playing the game they pretty much do what they want they do not listen to what they told, but they are they handle handled with kid gloves by the global banking elite, and I'm not exactly sure what agreements they've they've made between those 
parties, but it's a very interesting thing to observe. Isn't it interesting that this, the international financial institution, the, the, the BIS, Bank of, for International Settlements, was established in 1930, as, as you said, in Switzerland. Immediately after, we started seeing World War II, and you have Switzerland, the most neutral country in the world. Not a bomb fell there, but all the money that came to finance both sides of the war. Where did you think? Where do you think the, the money come from? Where did it come from? Yeah, no, absolutely. In Switzerland, you know, the funny thing is if you've ever been into Switzerland, it's, it's an interesting journey. Yes. You go, you, for example, you drive, you drive from Austria or Germany or uh, any of those countries and, and, or Italy and you drive towards Switzerland. The moment you cross the border, first of all, you've got the Swiss guard, you, uh, the, 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 the Swiss police. They've got their own currency, as you know, the frank thing. Mm -hmm. They don't use euros. And, and there's a very different energy there. It's like this arrogant energy, like nothing can touch us. No one can touch us. We've had no wars in Switzerland. And the, what, well, the reason you notice that immediately is that the buildings change. The architecture changes quite dramatically as you cross the border into Switzerland because no bombs have ever fallen on Switzerland. Uh, and, and the buildings are still the same kind of buildings they were much longer than the other European countries around them. Where, where the immediate towns around Switzerland were bombed and destroyed during the war in Switzerland, the buildings are, are still pristine. It's really interesting. Back in 2001, the first time I went to Switzerland, I, I came across from Germany, and my tour guide and I were discussing the scenery, how beautiful it is. But as, and as we were approaching certain tunnels, I would see these what looked to be almost like cannonballs before you approach the tunnels. And I would say, what is that? Is that an ornament? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. A lot of these, in case any country wants to invade Switzerland, they detonate all these areas so that nobody can cross into the country. I found that to be very interesting. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Well, that just takes it to a whole other level, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, with Ubuntu, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. My parents left communism, so I know a thing or two about communism. In the past, we had barter. Let's say you have a farm, and I have a garden, and you want beans, I want rice. We go and we barter. We exchange it. Now, how is Ubuntu different from communism? Uh, very different. It's one of the frequently asked questions, um, Mel, and I would recommend that if people really want to get into it, please get the copy of the Ubuntu book. Uh, you can get it online and read the book. Uh, don't try and rationalize it for yourself. Don't try and don't start arguing against the system or against the strategy until you've read the book or actually understand in more detail or comprehend in more detail. Uh, what this is. It is nothing like communism. It is nothing like socialism. It is nothing like fascism or capitalism or anything else. It is a whole new ism, a kind of ism we've never had. And we call it contributionism. Uh, it is a contributionism where people contribute their talents and skills for the greatest benefit of everyone in their community. And the motto is, if it's not good for everyone, it's no good at all. And it's pretty much a system in which money no longer plays any role. And, uh, and, and let me ask you a question, right? And, and again, the, 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 the question that you ask comes from, from a position of fear. And I get this often. Uh, and you can just see how, 
how full full of fear most of us are based on what's happened to us in the past how we've been traumatized by the by the regimes and the 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 elite over thousands of years the trauma and the damage runs deep in our veins and deep in our dna structure um and this is uh, this is a, an incredible thing that very quickly disappears and dissolves when you start going into this this uh, this philosophy of removing money from the system and realizing that the moment you remove money you also remove all the dark and horrible aspects of humanity crime crime virtually disappears overnight if there's no money um gluttony envy uh, all the seven deadly sins uh, ba- basically disappear overnight uh, because there's no more space for anyone to manipulate and control the system and their community, their environment, the people, because suddenly everything is done from a completely different perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I, the way that contributionism works is a very simple structure. Um, and it's taken a long time to figure out how we're going to implement this. So uh, you might be aware of the fact that uh, at one stage in 2009, I actually started the process of registering the Ubuntu party because I believed that we should inject the seed of consciousness or the virus of consciousness into the political beast and change politics and convert politics from a dirty and an ugly uh, uh, system or uh, part of our society into something that actually serves humanity because you know the politicians are supposed to be elected as our leaders to serve to serve us to be our servants uh, little do we know that the, the the politics is completely and utterly controlled by the money the banksters that control the political arena and that's why they created they created a false illusion of freedom they created and presented us with a false illusion of choice that we have a choice we can choose for our lead choose our leaders through a process called elections and democracy and and they've they've convinced us that elections are actually you know um, honorable democratic tools that we use to um, to choose our leaders that will that will work for us and do what we want and little do we know like ignorant little babies we believe them little do we know that the electoral process is completely and utterly controlled the outcome is controlled everything is controlled and this is why it is a secret vote. It is your secret. And we think it's a good thing that it's your secret. No, it's a big problem that it's a secret because there's no way you can ever check who voted for who. And this is why it is completely and utterly manipulated. So uh, the, the contributionism principle works, um, has evolved over a long period of time. How do we change the system that we have into something that works for humanity, that cannot be manipulated, that cannot be controlled or hijacked? And that's why it's taken 12 years. It didn't happen in the first 12 months or two years. That was a process of learning and absorbing and walking the path, experiencing the politics. We ran in three elections in South Africa. Until last year, until 2016, Ubuntu Party was involved in elections, still believing that we could bring in change through the political arena. Since then, we've learned what not to do. So this has been an incredible learning curve and a journey of discovery. We were involved in uh, Ubuntu Party in South Africa, the UK, and also in Australia uh, from 2012 to 2016. And we've then realized that 
that the moment we enter the political arena, we become an opposition. We, f- we actually start to contest and fight the system, fight for our rights and contest and become an opposition party. And this is exactly what the system wants. It wants that opposing negative kind of reality. Uh, and uh, a negative energy, should I say, uh, where people oppose each other and part different parties and people, you know, you know what happens in politics, especially in some countries. I mean, people from different political parties go to war against each other. It's incredible. So it creates opposition and conflict. And I realized that instead of spreading the seeds of unity and consciousness and unifying people through our common goals and common purpose of liberty and freedom and justice for all and and absolute freedom and liberty, and we can talk in much more detail about that because we don't have any kind of liberty and freedom whatsoever today. So instead of instead of bringing liberty and freedom and unity and consciousness to to the world, we were participating in a competitive system where we became an opposition opposing the others. And I realized that that's not going to work. That doesn't work. We have to remove ourselves from that. So um, this has now been the strategy for the last year and a half where the whole Ubuntu movement has evolved into what we now call the one small town can change the world strategy. Um, in fact, in the South African elections in 2016, that was our strategy already. We believed that if we could win the election in just one small town or one small municipality, we can then implement the plan of action, and we can talk about that in more detail, implement the Ubuntu plan of action, how to implement the contributionism strategy and bring prosperity and abundance to that one small town from which it will then create a domino effect into thousands of small towns, not just in the, in our own country, but across the borders and all over the world. Um, and, uh, and, but we didn't win uh, any municipal, municipal elections and realized at that stage, uh, that the, the system is completely controlled. People are filled with fear. Um, the outcome of the elections is controlled and manipulated and we not, we can't win on that level. And uh, that's when we decided to pull out of politics completely and operate purely as a philosophy and a strategy that is learned through the process. So now we have uh, a global strategy that is already taken off, which we call one small town can change the world. And I recommend that your listeners go to YouTube and just put in one small town can change the world or one small town. Uh, global and uh, watch the little five minute video and that will give you in four minutes or five minutes a very quick introduction on how quickly and easily we can create a new reality for ourselves, a new paradigm without any violence, opposition or conflict using the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation. It is the most beautiful, simple, poetic justice that I can share with everyone. That was my next question, because I always like to see beta tests. I like to see things in action coming from the bottom to the top, or, you know, microcosm to the macrocosm. And I don't know if you've heard of these model cities that are proposed for Honduras, which happens to unfortunately be one of the most crime-ridden countries in the world, yet they are proposing these model cities for libertarians, where or, or, you know, like many utopias for enterprise, uh, where there's going to be a town, the government's not going to get involved. It's going to basically give rise to something absolutely new. Do you foresee this happening anytime soon? And how, where? Is it a number of people who perhaps 
And again, I have to use the word money here because right now, in order to buy a piece of land, you need to have currency. So if you have, so you buy, I don't know, 20,000 acres or 500,000 acres, whatever. And all of a sudden you bring people with all walk, from all walks of life with farming, engineering, and you all create a small city on the Ubuntu philosophy. Is this what you're envisioning? In a way, yes. Um, the, we have learned, however, the hard way, and this has been a tough journey, that intentional communities don't work. Um, they're just, they're act absolutely a nightmare. It's a disaster waiting to happen and explode. And if you talk to anyone that, that wanted to, that, that has wanted to start an intentional community or has started an intentional community in the past, uh, you'll, you'll hear incredible tales of woe and, and desperation because it is, it is unbelievable, uh, how they just don't work. Uh, and they are not a solution. Currently, in our current uh, capitalist control system, the entire world is driven and controlled by the by the, the current system. Uh, intentional community is just a little island of where the people, you know, look after each other, but they're still trapped uh, in in an in an ocean of capitalism and money, and it's not a solution for the greater picture. Uh, what the solution is is, as I said, is has evolved. So. So the one small town can change the world strategy is is just so simple and poetically beautiful. And as I said, a twisted poetic justice that used the tools of enslavement as tools of liberation. And, uh, and, and this is what is really important because now as, as, a, as a movement that has a simple philosophy, we don't need to participate in politics and, uh, and get involved with any political party. We can just approach any mayor anywhere in the world who's a conscious human being who stood to become a mayor at, for the right reasons because he or she wants to do good for his or her community, for the people, for themselves, but does not know how to do it because the current system has not trained us to think like that. And we constantly go in and use the, the tools uh, that created the problem thinking we can solve So, you know, solve the problems with the, the tools that created the problem. Um, unless you realize how to use those tools, you're going to go around in circles and, and what Albert Einstein calls insanity, thinking, expecting different results, uh, repeating the same experiment over and over again, and you're going to end up with the same results uh, and it doesn't work. So the one small town can change the world now really hinges on uh, a mayor deciding that They want to implement this new system and the people realizing that they need something new because the current system doesn't work so that the consensus comes both from the top and the bottom, bottom up, top down. We don't have conflict between the mayor and the people and vice versa, which is most of the time what happens today. The, the current municipalities never, ever do what the people want because they're driven by constraints. There's never enough money to do this or to do that. So they can never do what the people really need or what the people want. And it's just a never-ending trap. What a one small town does, it provides a solution for that by using the, the, the tools, using money, the greed of capitalism, uh, uh, and changing one thing. We change the competition, the concept of competition where companies and people compete against each other to survive and companies compete to have a better, cheaper product on the market so they can sell more, so companies can survive. We change that one thing. We turn competition around and we remove competition from our system and we replace that with cooperation and collaboration. 
So everything we do in our towns and communities is something that belongs to the people. If we need to bake bread, we bake bread for all, for all of us. If we need to grow food, we grow food for all of us. And, uh, and, and we still use the capitalist system and the system of hierarchical structure, the pyramid system, uh, corporate structure, um, the, 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 the control of, of how companies work and so that there is a flow of, of productivity. We use all that stuff, but we actually now use it for the benefit of the people. And this is the, 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 the critical difference. So the way that we approach the one small town, we go to a mayor and we say, look, let's identify the 100 businesses or projects that we, that we can start the towns with. And again, let me just qualify this because I know we're going to come back to this. The reason we go with one small town, because you cannot implement this in a city. To, 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 to try a million people or 10 million people to, to start doing things differently is virtually impossible. But if you've got a small town of 5,000 people or 10,000 people, you can do this with great success. And, uh, and the whole model is built on, on everybody contributing a few hours a week towards some of the community projects that we're going to introduce to the town. Now, uh, very quickly, if you have a town of 10,000 people and everybody contributes three hours a week, you have a labor force of 30,000 hours a week. You know how much you can do with 30,000 hours of labor a week in a small town. We can virtually move mountains, right? Now, it's really so simple that, that it boggles the mind. And, and people constantly try and find, because this is how we wired, we fear failure. Uh, and, and fortunately, there is no downside. There's only an upside to implementing this. At least we're trying something new. It will work, but there is no downside. There's no, if we fail, for, for example, if for some reason something fails, it doesn't mean the families are going to be ripped apart or community is going to be ripped apart. It means whatever we tried together didn't work, so we're going to try something else. But uh, the, the beautiful thing about this is that once the mayor adopts this policy, and the people support it, which we know already is working because we've we've achieved this in one town in Canada already, uh, the town of North Frontenac uh, outside of Toronto. Um, so in North Frontenac, we have the first mayor that has adopted this one small town model. Uh, we have several mayors in the USA that are already talking to Ubuntu. Uh, we have a mayor, one mayor, believe it or not, in South Africa. We have a mayor in South Africa that is waiting for me to deliver the document to him. Um, we have a mayor in Australia that I spoke to just two days ago. I had my first discussion with a mayor in Australia that loves the model and wants to implement it. We have several mayors in the UK uh, that I, I had a Skype call with them uh, the other day. Unfortunately, the link broke down. There wasn't a strong enough link. So we rescheduled the, the call. So this idea is exploding around the world. It's no longer a theory. It is now an, an idea that has taken off in one town. And many mayors around the world are already approaching us to say, hey, I like this. I want to implement this in my town. So clearly it's an idea whose time has come. And it's now just about to implement it and create the domino effect all over the world. What do you think the first? If you want, what do you if think you the want first to come down? in with something? Well, what, what, I'm sorry. Repeat the question. Uh, if you want to come in with something before I carry on rambling on, I <laughs> know that's fine. I'm just thinking. Look, I'm a conscious capitalist. 
I, as I said before, and, and, and again, what I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate, I'm trying to antagonize what you're trying to accomplish here, because I think a solution has to be proposed for the current system. I get that. At the same time, here in the United States, for example, you get a lot of people who think the answer is socialism or communism. And we've been that do that, down that road before. And some people say, well, but, you know, Cuba, that's in the past. Well, you have Venezuela, you have other countries. And I don't want people to confuse your proposal to that. At the same time, if there's no barter, if there's no money, I, I hate to talk about me here, for example, but somebody, and I'm just going to make a quick story. So some friends came to over to my house the other day and they saw a picture of my parents. They were standing in the winter in Spain and they say, oh, wow, your parents used to travel to Spain. It was a black and white picture. And what they didn't know, and I told the story later, was that that's the day they arrived in Cuba after all their processions were taken by a communist regime. In the dead of winter, people felt sorry for them and gave them some... Uh, clothing to be able to to weather the, 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 the cold weather there. A photographer felt sorry and took a picture. Now people see that picture in front of a bank and think, oh, they were vacationing there. Well, they had to work very hard to raise myself, my brothers, and so on. And thankfully, we were able to be educated. We, you know, are in business, conscious capitalism. I'm not hurting anybody. Now, when you see people like me who are trying to do good in this world, where do we fit in the Ubuntu philosophy? Oh, that's a very important question, Mel. It is people like you and the conscious capitalists, the conscious millionaires, that will be the driving force uh, behind creating the one small town and making this a global domino effect and a success much quicker than people realize. Because, you know, everybody, know, everybody wants something different. Everybody lives in misery in the world. There are very few people that are happy with what's going on. The, in the grass world. is always it, greener, right? Yeah. So, so the conscious capitalists will be the driving force behind this. So I want to take you through a little journey of how this is going to work. I'm going to, you know, again, once you've seen the One Small Town video, you're going to get it. It's four minutes of of literally some people start to cry when they see it because they realize, oh, my God, it's that simple. This is I can't believe I've been so blind to how simply and quickly we can release ourselves from this prison of capitalism and and this 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 system that we're in. So I'm the mayor of a small town. It needs to be a certain size of town because uh, we assume that in the beginning, not everybody is going to want to participate because people are fearful and skeptical and and they question and they ridicule. That's just the way we've been divided and we've been educated through our education system whose intention is to do exactly that. Uh, so not everybody is going to participate. So uh, we structured our model. This is just a model. And again, this is a living philosophy. It evolves itself. And it is what I call uh, an uncorruptible, um, self-correcting system because the system always corrects itself for the best outcome of the need of the community of the people. So you, once you start, it just gets better and better and stronger and stronger. And this is what has happened to this philosophy over 12 years. The more problems people have thrown at it, the more solutions have been found, the more ways we found of how to come out of this and how to make it stronger and better and and uh and and this is why it's still going and getting stronger all the time. So 
I'm the mayor of a town of, say, 10,000 people. I'm going to use 10,000 people because it's an easy round number. Um, and um, the first thing we do, we bring in our own electricity. And this is the key thing. And we now have an energy partner that will provide and will bring in an energy device that will provide electricity to the people. Our energy partner will pretty much install this thing virtually free of charge. And this is the big, this is the, the game changer, Mel. Once we have our own supply of electricity for the people of our town, we can move mountains. We can do anything we choose because we no longer are prisoners to the electrical grid supply of the government or whoever controls that to our town at the moment. This in itself provides or, or presents a possible problem because, as you know, the global supply of electricity has been a tool of enslavement. Yeah. And the energy grid was created for exactly that reason, so that people can be controlled through the supply of electricity and the water to their homes. If you cut off the electricity and the water to a city, people die within a week. People start dying. And this is why it's a very powerful tool of control. Now, in our small town, for example, in North Frontenac, uh, or any other small town, the first thing the mayor has to do is figure out a way how to bring in the, our own source of electricity so we can unplug the current electricity provider and plug our own energy in so that we control our supply of electricity. The moment we have overcome that hurdle, we have libera liberated ourselves and can start this journey of uh, irreversible progress. Um, and there are ways of doing it. Like I said, uh, in North Frontenac, it's happening already. There are ways and means of doing it. It's just people have to start thinking outside the box. And the mayor and the council and the people have to start taking back their sovereign rights. And in some places, it might require some extreme measures, whatever those might be. But it's certainly going to start take some thinking outside the box so that we can implement our own supply of electricity. Now we've got that then this becomes the first source of, I suppose, um, exchange, if you can call it that. And um, basically, we then look as the mayor and the council and the people of the town, we identify what are the industrial opportunities that we have, the factories that are standing empty, the farms that are standing empty, the material, the equipment that is lying idle because it's broken and cannot be fixed, the uh, the the people skills and the talents. Do we have any rocket scientists that are working in McDonald's because they can't find a job or inventors that have invented incredible devices, cures for cancer and free electricity or or levitation technology and, and inventors that have got incredible inventions that they cannot put to fruition because nobody, they can't find the money and so forth. We look at what brilliant people we have, material scientists and healers and teachers that are not using their talents and skills for the benefit of their community. And we start up, um, I always use the word, the, the, the number 100, we identify 100 businesses or community projects that we're now going to initiate or restart or reactivate. Every project is structured like a business. It is scrutinized. It is planned. It is executed and implemented meticulously, uh, much better than any other project of its kind in a capitalist world, because suddenly in this world, you're, you're going to have a labor force of 
10,000 people every week contributing three hours a week. Now, even if only 10% of the town agrees to participate in these community projects that we're starting to start off with, you still have a 1,000 people every week. That means you still have 3,000 hours of labor every week to contribute to these projects. Now, this could be from growing food. Obviously, the cornerstones of the projects that we start are the important ones. Uh, the growing of food and and creation of food security for our town. So we've got much more food than what we need. Once we start working together, we then also decide how much do we need of everything? How much food do we need? How many cabbages do we need? How much maize do we need? How how much this do we need and that? And, And we always calculate what we need and then make sure we grow much more than what we need. The model is always we got to grow at least three times as much as what we need. It's always have reserve. Yeah, exactly. But we'll probably grow a lot more than three times because that's just how it works, right? Now, the moment, uh, and, and, and I'm digressing a bit because, you know, there, there are a few little explanations here and there. Remember, the moment you, you contribute three hours a week towards one of these community projects, obviously there's going to be a process where we set up a computer system and a computer structure that, that monitors and controls who we need where and what specialized skills do we need where and find the right people for these specialized skills in the community. These are, this is a simple thing that we do in a few weeks by, by using proper computerized systems. This is not rocket science. This gets done all over the world today in any case. So we use that technology to our advantage to know who we need, where and when, so we do it efficiently and effectively. Are you saying, and, um, Michael, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are you saying that this concept can coexist at least in the beginning with the current yes, system? Exactly, Mel, this is the key thing, and I'm so glad you brought this up, because this is the key thing. Even if 10% of the people decide that they're going to participate in this, the mayor is not going against anything. The mayor is introducing new initiatives into his or her community. We're, he, he or she, the mayor is taking the community forward, lifting the community up. Some part of the community will decide to participate. The others will sit on the fence and say, well, let's see what happens. I want to see what happens here. But we're not going backwards. We're not, we're not pulling the community down. We're elevating, lifting the community with new ideas, new initiatives. So can you see there is no downside to this? There's only an upside from the very word go. Nobody has to leave their job. You don't have to stop doing something as the whole town doesn't have to stop doing something and move. Everybody has to transition into a new system. That's never going to work. And this is why this plan of action has taken so long to evolve itself. This is gradual. Then it seems to more appealing. And again, I'm yet to read the book. That's why I was a little bit uh, ignorant in some of the concepts. But if it's gradual, if it can coexist, but at the same time, I see it the antithesis of Agenda 21 or Agenda 2040 because you're doing exactly the opposite. You're going to be controlling your own resources. But I have to ask you a question before we break, and you'll get me, you'll get, you'll give me the answer on the other side. You're one of those those people that I've gotten to know for years. The amount of knowledge you've acquired for decades about the true origins of humanity. I have to ask you this. It seems to me that you have researched the pyramids, all the megaliths around the world. There must have been some commonality in the past. Language, a oneness with everybody, knowledge. Did you obtain this information 
as an analysis of all that research you've conducted based on the ancient ones. And I'll get you answer on the other side. I'll tell you a little bit of cliffhanger there for the audience. How can people buy your books, learn more about Ubuntu, and learn more about your work, Michael? Just go to michaeltillinger.com and uh, ubuntuplanet.org, ubuntuplanet.org. I didn't expect it was going to be all Ubuntu, the first segment, but this is so interesting. This is a new concept, and it's important to explore, folks. But when we come back, we'll bring the origins of humanity, the Anunnaki, into all of this. I'm privileged to have my friend Michael Tallinger back to Veritas. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, Miracle Mineral Solution, Pure Organic Sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. Try